6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 11 through 18. In any case, God's verdict is there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And Paul quotes this, as I say, in Romans 3. And uh, God is the general and the refuge of the righteous. He's in charge. And he's going to have his way, believe me. He continues here in verse 4. Have all workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. He's the general. He's the boss. He's the guy in charge. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. See, in other words, when you deny these truths, you are insulting God. You know, it's really interesting to me. You study the ancient pagan cultures, and they made idols of wood and stone and metal, whatever, and ascribed the creation to these false gods, which is pretty stupid, but that's what they did. Or to insects or an animal. You know, they have all these crazy things. We've invented the most insulting idol of all. We don't ascribe the creation of the world to Baal or somebody. We say it wasn't it wasn't created. No one was necessary. It was randomness. We actually worship nothingness. Boy, it's a, it's a boundary condition. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. By the captivity, it doesn't mean like being captive. It means restore the fortunes of. It's a strange translation in that sense, I suspect. That the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. Do you realize that nine out of ten churches in America deny that, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion? Because the church has replaced Israel? No, no, uh-uh. When we pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, we're praying for the fulfillment of these prophecies. And there, Paul hammers away at this in three chapters of the book of Romans, 9, 10, and 11. And if you want to put in your notes Romans 25, uh, Romans, excuse me, 11, verse 25 to 31. Let's take a look at it. Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's a term for the church. There's a number God is looking for. When that number is complete, he's going to say to the son, go get him. Then Paul continues. And so all Israel shall be saved. It is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer. It's quoting the very verse, very psalm we were into, right? So out of, uh, so out of Zion, Chuck, you're a Christian Zionist. Absolutely. I'm proud of it. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant 
unto them. Who's speaking here? Paul, but he's quoting who? God. When I shall take away their sins. That day is coming. And as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved of the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. And he goes on. Chapters 9, 10, 11, hammering away for three chapters that God has not finished with Israel, despite what most pulpits in this country preach. Do your own homework. Come to your own conclusions. Israel and the church are not to be confused. Different origins, different destinies. Okay, now we come to the one, if you haven't been bothered so far, I know there's going to be some that will be upset with Psalm 15. I was quite surprised that I really got into it, what it was really saying. Book of Psalms, Psalm 15. The Psalm of David. And... Uh, Psalm 14 identified two groups, just to put you in context here. Two groups. The workers of iniquity, that was chapter, uh, Psalm 10 and 12, and the generation of the righteous, the believing remnant. Okay? Now understand that Psalm 15 is not a prescription for being saved. It's a description how saved people ought to behave if they would please God in fellowship with Him. You understand the distinction? Many people don't. But let's be sensitive right up front. Okay, the psalm opens up. David says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? That's the question the psalm is going to deal with. Now, the word dwell is a fascinating word. You'll want to be sensitive to this one. In the, in the Hebrew, it's shakan, which means to settle down, abide, dwell, tabernacle, or reside. Why am I making a point of that? Because it's a derivative of that that is shekinah. Shekinah, which means God's glory dwelling. And it's referred to in Exodus several times, 1 Chronicles 22, and in three different Psalms, we'll encounter it as we go. Dwell. Come, say Shekinah doesn't appear in the, in, the, in the Bible. Yes, it does in the sense of being derived from Shekinah, to dwell. God tabernacle, His glory tabernacled with. That's what the tabernacle was for. That's what the Holy of Holies was for, that He tabernacled, He dwelt between the cherubim in there. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the obedience of the righteous. You know, the rabbis, many of you probably realize, the rabbis take the Torah, and they've identified 613 commandments. And if you're Jewish, you're well acquainted with these 613 commandments. If you are a Gentile, you know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And many Gentile believers get fascinated and benefited by learning about what they call, some people call a messianic uh, 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 service or ministry. Because I think as Christians, we need to know more than we usually do about the Old Testament. Because Paul said, whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. He also goes on to say they were a foreshadowing things to come, their prophetic implications. Okay, that's all good news. There's a danger, though. Many Gentiles getting enamored with Messianic fellowships tend to get drawn under Judaism and try to keep the 613 commandments. And there's a tension there. Most Christians are in one of two extremes. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know anything about this. Or they go to the other extreme where they try to become Jewish. They don't understand what they're... They're denying Christ by doing that. They don't realize it. 
Book of Galatians is still there. Check it out. Psalm 15 does something I didn't anticipate. It reduces the 613 commandments to 11. And that's going to, I think that's interesting. Six of them are detailed. There's 11 of them that'll be in Psalm 15, but six of them are really echoes of Isaiah 33, verse 15 and 16. You might want to write that down. Let's take a look at it. Isaiah 33, 15, 16, which instructs us as, He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from the hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. There are six of them right there. He shall dwell on high. He's answering the question that David posed. Who shall dwell in the tabernacle? These are six conditions of the guy that's dwelling in the tabernacle. He walks up righteously. He speaketh uprightly. He despises the gain of oppressions. He shaketh his hands from holding of bribes. He stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood. And shutteth his eyes from the seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of the rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be pure. That's Isaiah's contribution. Let's take three from Micah 6.8. Key verse, one you want to memorize. Micah 6, 8. Micah says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Boy, that's direct, understandable. That gives us some focus, doesn't it? To do justly, fair enough. We can figure that out. To love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. Okay. And there's one more. And this is perhaps the most important of all. Habakkuk 2.4. And it's going to be echoed in three epistles I'll come to. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Little verse in Habakkuk 2.4. You would... Read this and never notice it again, except of what happened through history, that it became the discovery of a guy by the name of Martin Luther, who was really troubled with his own sinful nature, and a lot of it, he was a very troubled person. And a monk called that to his attention. And climbing over the Israel, he walked to, to Rome for his big thing. And when he got in Rome, he was shocked by what he really found there. And then he went to try to correct the, what he, the, the, the issues in the church. You know the story of the Reformation. But many people don't realize his main mantle, if I can put, use that term, or mantra if you want to use that term, the just shall live by faith. Who are the just? There is a book of the Bible, the definitive statement of Christian doctrine that we call the book of Romans, that basically addresses itself to identifying justification. Who are the just? And it quotes this verse right up front in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. You'll find this verse quoted as the cornerstone of Paul's argument about who the just are. Then he writes a book called the Galatians, to the Galatians, which describes how they shall live. How shall the just live? And Galatians lays that out and quotes this verse as its cornerstone in chapter 3, verse 11. The just shall live by faith. What do you mean by faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, just before penning this 
chapter that everybody calls the hall of faith. Hebrews answer that, answers that for you. And what's fascinating to me is that these three epistles, once you study them carefully, you'll discover they are a trilogy of commentary on this one verse. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Romans 1. Romans. How shall they live? Galatians. By faith? Give me examples. Chapter 11 and so on. Now the reason I find this so fascinating is that uh, that's one of the reasons I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Some scholars debate that. If those scholars are correct, it's even a bigger miracle to have this elegant design of this trilogy. It's a, it's a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit in any case. Okay, so we've got 11 commandments. And uh, so let's just, that, 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 this is the obedience of the righteous. Let's jump in. Let's now, that, with that background, let's see what, what uh, David tells us here. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? David gives us three, three steps. He that walketh uprightly, who worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Now, when you meditate on this, you'll discover there are three aspects that he's talking He that walketh uprightly, that worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in heart. These three things are the practical aspects of life. Three basic areas. Blameless character, righteous conduct, and truthful conversation. Okay? And verse 2 lists these three basic areas in life. If you got them covered, you got it made. Now he's going to go ahead in the next verses 3, 4, and 5 to apply these three things practically and specifically in his, in his, in his uh, psalm. Let's take a look at chapters 3, 4, and 5. I mean, verses 3, 4, and 5. He that backpiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. That's one of them. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth, out, putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Okay, so we have these three things. Blameless character, righteous conduct, truthful conversation. Applied practically, the first, we'll pick integrity. The blameless character is a way of what we might call integrity. Righteous conduct, I'll call that honesty. And truthful conversation, I'll call that sincerity. Okay, in verses 3, 4, and 5, not in that order, but that's where the, it deals with those three things. Integrity, blameless character. See, what we are determines what we do and what we say. The reason our, sometimes our speech or conduct is so damning is because it reveals our character. Someone said character is what you're doing when you don't think no one's looking. And you can go all through the Scripture. You can get these in your notes. Isaiah 33, 58, Jeremiah 7, Ezekiel 18. They all deal with this. Pretty straightforward stuff. Matthew 5, Christ's manifesto we call the Sermon on the Mount, deals with all of this. And notice we say blameless, not sinless. It simply speaks to the soundness of character, integrity, complete loyalty to God. Blameless means that your sins are forgiven. You're not sinless, but your sins are forgiven. There's a difference. Noah was blameless, Genesis 6-9. Abraham was blameless, Genesis 17. Were they sinless? No, of course not. But they were blameless. Well, the second area is honesty. What 
David calls righteous conduct. You know, David has a list of sins that were in good standing. And, I might, and, and I'm being a little flippant here. They're the popular sins, the ones that everybody was doing, you know. It's okay, everyone's doing it, you know. And that's in verse 5. He talks about the exorbitant interest was prohibited. And he gets in all through the, the Torah. There, you don't, the Jew was not to charge interest to another Jew. But the tone of it, of course, is exorbitant interest. Also accepting bribes. When there's money in the courtroom, you will not have, jur- you will not have justice. And that, that's all through the, there. Some people define politics, the conduct of public affairs for private advantage. Have you noticed? The lack of a rule of law in our country. As we began to realize that was the reality, that also means it's the end of the country. There is no rule of law operative in America any longer. Tragically, for a lot of reasons. And then we have the third one, truthful conversation, we're calling sincerity. Truth is the glue that holds our society together. Whether you're at the top of society with its phoniness, or whether you're at the dregs of society with its gangs and street thing, the absence of truth is what makes both ends intolerable. Truth is the glue that holds society together. So that raises a question, what is the most painful of all sins? What sins have accounted for more pain and suffering than any other? It isn't murder. It isn't even adultery, I don't believe. It's gossip. Quietly, it's venom does its silent work. Undermining confidences, betraying relationships, spreading unseen injustices, invisibly promoting misunderstandings and distrust. I suspect if we could measure it, it would be shocked to realize how much pain and suffering is caused by what we loosely might call gossip. It's a form of betrayal. Can't escape that. It's a form of betrayal. It's a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 16. Thou shalt not give false witness. And gossip can be damaging even if it's true. It doesn't have to be promoted. And we could go all through Leviticus 19, 16, where it's prohibited there. Proverbs 11, 18, 26, 20, 26, on it goes. Anyway, our poet laureate David says, he that doeth these things, the ones he's listed, he didn't list 613, he listed 11 in effect. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. And again, that's that's totter, shake. Slip, be moved, to be overthrown. He will never be overthrown. He will never be greatly shaken is what it's really saying. If you do those things, God is your protector, your refuge, and your strength, your rock. Let's see what Jesus said about these kinds of things. Mark 12. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Good question. Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one Lord, 
And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. That is known as the Shema. De Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, you'll find it on every doorpost in a Jewish home or in an office building, whatever, the little thing that's on the, the mezuzah, which is on the doorpost, typically at an angle, and, with the, and what's usually, not necessarily, but usually in it is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It's called the Shema. That's what Jesus is quoting here as the great commandment, but he's not through. He says, the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And he's simply quoting Leviticus 19.18. Scribe said unto him, well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Really? Are they important? Of course. But this is, this is the core of the thing. These are more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices together. And Jesus saw that he answered discreetly. He said to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst to ask him any questions. I love those clothes. Okay, let's move on. We've got Psalm 16. Can make this, I think. This is a michtam. What is a michtam? No one's quite sure. <laughs> Mictums always seem to, there's about six of them, um, and from 56 to 60 are mictums. They apparently are all happy and triumphant uh, in their style. Uh, some scholars think the term really means a golden jewel or a special treasure. These are speculations. Um, we know some are mictums and they're always upbeat kinds of things. It's a very personal hymn of joy in any case. And it, it uh, matches, uh, this, this, this particular one matches David's response to the covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, when the Davidic covenant is announced to David, he is joyed and he, he responds with words that are very, very parallel to this psalm. So we think it's the same subject. We do know it's messianic because it points to Christ, yes, but many, many psalms that point to Christ, we don't call messianic typically unless they're quoted as such in the New Testament. Because I could argue and probably defend the argument that every psalm speaks of Jesus Christ in some way or another. But the ones we call messianic are the ones typically they're quoted by. This one's quoted by Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's also quoted by Paul at Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13. This particular psalm is. Okay, a mictum of David. There's, all, there's a couple other quotes coming too, but I'll leave that there in a minute. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names unto my lips. He's talking about maintaining a separation from an inhospitable world. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a, a goodly heritage. Praise God. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. There's that, that not being moved again. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh shall also rest in hope. And next comes a incredible thing. See, by the way, he speaks about night seasons. It's the word nights there is in plural. You went to night school. The nights are plural. And uh, by the way, the other underlying thing, you know, is 
The future is your friend if you're in the Lord. That's also the tone in here. But this is called the song of the resurrection. We see the life of Christ in verse 8. We have the death of Christ in verse 9. We have the resurrection of Christ in verse 10. We have the ascension of Christ in verse 11. Pretty exciting. This is a, this is a neat psalm. Psalm 16, verse 10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Remember Lazarus? He was seeing corruption. He was in the grave four days. Christ was in only three days. He would not see corruption. This is quoted by Peter in, in, at Pentecost in Acts 2. It's quoted by Paul in Acts 3. And uh, we have... The this, deal, these, this deals with the resurrection of the body. Christ's body was an interesting body, the resurrected body. It was real and substantial. This was not a spirit. Remember Luke 24, 39, Jesus confronted them in the upper room you know, when he, uh, that, that night. Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. Remember? Okay. So he's real. He's tangible. He's got a body that's tangible. Don't get confused by what comes here now. He ingested food. In fact, he never appears after his resurrection without eating. My kind of guy, okay? <laughs> Yet he had a property that disturbs many. He could appear and disappear at will. So he's tangible. He's not a spirit, fuzzy, you know, uh, holographic or something. No, he is tangible. And yet he could go through locked doors. He could pass through locked doors and so forth. Interesting. The last, next verse, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So let's talk about his resurrection body again. Real and substantial, ingested food, can appear and disappear, pass through locked doors. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.